0: And Welcome to Northern Static, the show where Canadian composers tell us about the state of their art. I'm bassist and composer Pete Johnston. On this show, I talk to composers from a range of musical scenes to find out how they make their music, why it sounds the way it does, and, most importantly, what they think we should be listening for when we hear it. In this episode, I talk to composer, cellist, journalist, and organizer Nick Storing. Nick's music ranges from free improvisation to fully notated chamber music to dense electroacoustic studio constructions. Over the last decade, Nick has done so much for creative music in Canada, so it's a real privilege to have him on the show. A chat with Nick Storing, coming up next on Northern Static. Welcome to episode 12 of the show. The concept for the show is simple. I sit down and talk with composers about their creative processes, and they play some compositions of their choosing as examples of what they do. Think of it as a group listening session, where the creator of the music is there to guide us through how and why they make the music they do. My guest today is Nick Storing, a guy who does so much in the music world that it's difficult to know where to start with introducing him. Today we'll be talking about his work as a composer, but Nick is also a cellist, music journalist, concert presenter, publicist, and probably a few other things that I don't even know about. He's a busy guy all around. And all of his various activities have made him as informed about trends and developments in modern music as a person could possibly be. I've known Nick for many years. We met through his work as a performer in improvised groups such as I Have Eaten the City and The Knot. And he has steadily built a national profile as a composer through his compelling solo recordings, film soundtracks, and commissions from solo artists and chamber ensembles. Nick's musical interests are incredibly varied, as are his working methods, which range from building compositions through overdubbed home recordings to graphic scores to standard musical notation for world-class chamber music performers. With so much going on all the time, I was very fortunate to get Nick to sit down for a chat about how he makes the music happen. As always here at Northern Static, we will start things off with a bit of Nick's music, then get into our discussion. Here's a piece from his 2014 solo record, Gardens, called Come to my thicket. Storing, a uh, cellist, composer, all-around organizer of musical things, writer. As far as I can tell, there's nothing he can't do. And uh, i like to welcome him here to Northern Static. Nick Storing. Hello. You've done a lot of composing in a lot of different areas for um, electroacoustic music and, and, uh, and for acoustic instruments and rock bands and all, all sorts of things. When did you start composing and sort of either thinking of yourself as a composer or started writing music with the intention to play it yourself?
1: Well, I started composing when I was around, it was quite some time ago. I can't say it was very good, but I think it was around age 12 or 13. And it sort of came from two angles. Uh, One was stuff I was writing for the cello. So like solo cello things, little ditties here and there. And then I was doing, um, I was making sort of, Primitive electronic music uh, with various sort of implements. So this was back in the sort of early to mid '90s. You know, sort of consumer-grade sound card. Um, you know, I had a Radio Shack mixer. I would record things. I would record tapes of things and then mix them with things. Like I would four-track style. Not really. It was like a cassette. Like a cassette. Like a. I would use sort of like a Walkman and plug it into the mixer and play stuff back over other things. Um, so, not a four track. It was like much, it was even sillier than that. So, mm-hmm. and then I'd write sort of sequences on the computer and stuff too. Like, I had some kind of junk software that I'd use to make uh, different sort of electronic things. And that sort of improved over my high school years. Like, this was, so it started like grade six or seven is when I started like sort of tinkering around. And then You know, did more sort of research on the sort of nascent internet, um, and sort of discovered ways to do things electronically. So I was really into the electronic thing from a very early age, and um, that was a big part of my sort of growing up. And so, were you playing with
0: other people at a young age, or was this sort of like solo experimentation?
2: Well,
1: I was. um, I was in Suzuki cello. So I was playing classical music together with people. I was in youth orchestra and whatnot, and I would, yeah, I would, I would play. I would play music with other people, but it wasn't my music. Um, actually, I should, I should take that back. My cello teacher very generously had the all of the kids play Suzuki style uh, my my piece. So we all played unison. It wasn't parts. It was just sort of we all played the piece in unison. So I had a bit of that but it was you know it was very kind of specific kind of situations where it would be my music and live people playing. I think later in high school I got into some improvising with some peers at school but it was it was less frequent than sort of just making stuff in a more solitary way.
0: So was there particular models or stuff you're reading about to get you inspired to write your own
1: things? I had read sort of I, you know I was sort of like really voracious with uh, like library books, I'd read about, you know, different electronic composers and I'd take stuff out of the, the library and I was listening to community radio. So I was pretty into, I was getting into recorded music at a pretty early age too, like, and sort of the stranger ends of things. So I was kind of, I almost kind of went backwards uh, to what most people did. You know, grade five and six, I was into the sort of more mainstream stuff, but there was a, anytime I heard something unusual on the radio or, on Much Music, this is back when you could hear such things on Much Music in the radio. Mm-hmm. I would that would that would be sort of really exciting to me. So I would I would always gravitate toward that stuff. Um, and so as soon as I found a way to get, research that stuff more or just hear more of it, I I took that path. So yeah, there was a very there were various ways that I was sort of exploring things, but there, it wasn't it wasn't it's not as though I was following a particular model for making electro electronic music I was I was just sort of listening to stuff and finding sort of different software like there's a lot of sort of shareware and freeware stuff that I would sort of accumulate and uh, ways you could sample stuff so I would sample things from like with a microphone like actual instruments pots and pans whatever um, I'd sample uh, little nuggets of sound off of CD so like you know drum hits and various things and then I'd kind of compose with with the samples and Eventually I got a synthesizer in grade 10. I don't know, like I sort of just accumulated stuff and, and, and it was all sort of, it, it was pretty unorthodox the sort of way I was doing it. And how did that square with your classical
0: training? Because you, you're doing the straight up cello yeah. cello thing.
1: It felt like kind of a, maybe a separate activity in a way, but um, when I sort of decided that I wanted to study music, I knew that was my ticket into music school. Because most music schools playing don't.
0: the cello or the composing.
1: Well, most music schools require you to have a certain level of. I think very early on, I, I, in high school, I realized that I wanted to go to music school, and that the requirement for most music schools was to have at least grade eight cello, and so, you know, um, right. or better. So, you know, I came in playing, you know, ARCT sort of level pieces to be sure, because it's competitive, you know. Right. So, but did you have the uh, ultimate?
0: Goal of of doing composition once you once you got in, oh yeah, like from the start,
1: definitely. In fact, I was so nervous from like in high school, my sort of the frequency of performing was like became less and less, and so I remember like I was so nervous for my my uh, entry audition that I I just I knew these pieces really well, but I just blew them. I just completely blew them, and um, but I made it very clear that I was interested in composition and spoke to the. People, it was like Penderecki Quartet at Laurier, yeah. talked to them and then um, after the audition, they put you through to a sort of a, another uh, interview and uh, I was fortunate enough to get an interview with a, someone from the composition faculty. So that sort of, I think that really, so I was, yeah, I was dead set on it. That was like the one and only thing I wanted to do. Wow, because I stumbled into <clears> it. Like I actually
0: ended up majoring in composition only so I could graduate on time. Oh, And then it sort of turned out that <laughs> I was fond of it. But, but it really was just so I could get out of Dalhousie uh, for various reasons. Oh, wow. Um, but anyway, so it's, um, it's nice to, um, to hear that you had that right away as the, as the
1: idea. I had complete tunnel vision. It was It's kind of like to my detriment. How <laughs> so? Oh, I don't know. I just like, that was everything I did at school. In high school, I, I use every excuse I could to research music somehow. So, if there was a project and I could skew it towards music, I would I would always do that. It's, but it's sort of ridiculous. But. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. You got to do what you care about.
0: Yeah. So what? You know, you've talked about the cello as kind of your key to getting into this thing. Like, mm-hmm. what what role does the cello play now in in what you do?
1: It depends. It really depends. Uh, it's It'll always be my primary instrument. I started when I was four, right? So it's a big part of my life for the last, you know, more than 30 years. So, yeah, big part of my life. So, it, it, yeah, it really varies depending on what I'm doing. So, um, you know, I perf- still perform. I just performed the other day with a group of people doing my music at uh, Allen Gardens. So mm. that was, you know, I played the cello. Um yeah you know, I still teach cello a little bit. I played some bands on the cello. I improvise with the cello, but I'm not a, I don't see myself as a cellist per se. It's sort of just my main, it's just my main instrument, I guess. But I use other, a lot of other instruments to like work with and in my, my current compositional output. And like, if I'm composing a piece for another performer, I'm, I might use the cello as the sort of place to generate ideas, but I might use a piano or a, or another instrument, or just use the computer, right? So it really right. depends on. So you're you, not
0: writing from the cello out, no.
1: And I, it's never been that way. It really hasn't. I mean, it 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 was always a sort of it was an instrument and one that I liked and one that I feel is really versatile and beautiful. I love it. Um, but it was never. I never felt like the compositional thing came way more out of the like being playing with sound out of the computer. And as you got into it in in your studies,
0: was there um particular music that got you that got you really excited that um led to where you're at today
1: wow that's a tough question
0: or systems or ways of thinking about music
1: definitely not systems i'm not really a systematic sort of person when it comes to composing it's really really a very intuitive thing um i mean the one the one thing that really stuck with me uh sort of I mean, there's a lot of different musical influences, and I think those are actually really crucial to how I conceive of music. Like I, I, I listen to a lot of music, and I I digest it, and I often make reference to other forms of music in my music. So, um, but that's sort of a complicated question. But a, a principle that kind of really stuck with me. I remember like I was working with Peter Hatch uh, in my undergrad, and he he was my sort of yeah my my composition instructor. And uh, he always was sort of getting me to sort of open up, open things up um, and make them breathe more. Like I think I had this tendency to make things quite dense and relentless uh, when I was younger. And um, just like thinking about negative space has become really important and, and more so now. Like a lot of what I do is, a good half of what I do is quite spacious. The other half is kind of pretty dense. Um, but like that, that concern of like having... Moments of repose or like space. I, he was always encouraging me, like with the electroacoustic stuff, to sort of like you know, had you thought about putting putting more of a space here. So that that kind of, I mean, that's the closest thing to a system for me. That that's a really so influential what, thing. What do you mean
0: by negative space in relation to music, and and how like is, is how is that different than positive space or other kinds of space?
1: Oh well, it's just sort of like. You know, I think a lot of people sort of tend to think of music in terms of like what um, the notes and the, you know, the, the things you, you put you put down rather than the sort of, you know, the, those moments of breath or repose or, I you see. know, how to shape silence or what's well, not really silence, but quasi silence or like shape the sort of release of, of a gesture. So you have a gesture um, and like the, you know, the question of like, how long do you wait after that gesture before something else comes in or how does, you know, how do things sort of fall off rather than, you know, we're really concerned with like the, the, how things are initiated, you know, like, it's like you you hit a piano key and hold it down and you're, you're more more focused on I'm playing a G rather than like, how long am I waiting to let this release when, like, what kind of, what's the quality of the release and what, so thinking about that sort of thing was really Mm. crucial for me. That was a huge moment, but that's. Not exactly your question, I guess. It's
0: no, it is. That's a. That's a. That's a. You know, we all work with certain principles or things mm-hmm. that stuck with us. Then that changes over time, obviously. But I think a lot of composers have something they mm. picked up early on that that is that is run through a lot of what they do. A lot
1: of what we do. Mm-hmm. Another thing that occurs to me that's kind of a related thing, but again, not a direct thing that I, I think is a big part of my how I work is um, the fact that I was raised in the sort of Suzuki school and that, that you're kind of, um, there's a big emphasis put on like listening and mimicry. So the ability to copy, like you, you learn the material by copying your teacher. So as a composer, I mean, this kind of got me into trouble, um, in terms of like how I saw myself because I, I had a, I developed a really good year for mimicking things. Like I could kind of ape a style like very, very easily. The problem with that is that you, it, it, the more you get into perfecting how well you can ape a style, the, the further away your like your own concerns are. And so it mm. took me a while to sort of because earlier on when I graduated, I we did a lot of theater work where that kind of stuff really impresses people and it works really well. And the more um, organic it sounds, like I wasn't using at that point, I wasn't even using much sort of electronic stuff. So I would Im- imitate things that with actual instruments. And people would be really surprised that I was able to pull this stuff off all by myself. But I think, you know, down the road, I had to sort of temper that tendency. Although were, it still plays a huge role.
0: Like were there some pieces that you wrote that, that you can look back and see them as, as mimicking? Something? Oh, very much
1: so. They're deliberately mimicking. Like, I mean, it's part some, some of the thing was the sort of idea of like, Of mimicking, like you know, like especially stuff for like theater, where it's like, okay, this that's that's very common
0: in theater because and in any kind of dramatic where you're pairing music with something else, yeah, visual, like you know, basically, you know, Stanley Stanley Kubrick wanted uh, the Strauss piece, yeah, and then they had to commission another composer to write something that sounded like the Strauss piece. It didn't work out, yeah, and then but then he didn't use it. (laughs) Kubrick just put in the Strauss piece because that's what he wanted. So so that that composer. You know, that's what his job was was to kind of mimic that. And I think that probably happens quite a lot in um in film and yeah and, and play
2: work.
1: Yeah. I mean, like nowadays I feel like um I've figured a way to like integrate that idea into into something that feels more like me. Hmm. So often like I think I'm not sure if we'll hear it at all in either of the pieces that I'm I've I've brought, but um yeah, often I'll have a device that I'll use is is sort of the sort of like appearance of something that seems familiar, and um, like you know there'll be sort of a, a certain texture that exists in the piece, and then um, suddenly you'll you'll sort of get this sort of waft of something that sounds like you might know it, but you you don't. So it's original material designed to sound a certain way. I, yeah, it's not something I use all the time, but there's definitely pieces where, you know, something will kind of just appear, and you're like, oh, that's that's that feels like this, and you know that it's this style, but it came out of some, this different context. Whereas, I think before the tendency was to just sort of, well, I mean, I don't know, I didn't really do that too much in my own. It depends. Yeah, it's kind of funny when I, when I was younger, I had more interest in kind of working stylistically, and now I'm kind of. I I, I don't, I kind of just, it's an abstract thing and it, 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 someone might see it one way and another person might see it another.
0: So maybe you could uh, walk us a little bit through your, this, this process of your composing, like, uh, you know, how you do it, when you do it, do you have a particular time that you sit down and write or um, a, a process of actually generating, generating stuff a day in your creative life?
1: Well, I have sort of two I mean the two primary things that I do are kind of writing chamber music and then writing like some form of chamber music um with varying degrees of openness and uh uh and then the other stuff I do is sort of kind of electroacoustic or whatever. So, the chamber music kind of things, I guess I sort of um it can come from anywhere like the the sort of impetus of it. Um I, I do take into account who I'm writing for. Like, I don't often write chamber pieces just for, uh, just like I don't sort of think, oh, I want these instruments together and then write a piece. It's usually for um, for specific people. So um, I generally sort of take the context into account and then start to sort of I use that as sort of motivation. But it's it's a very intuitive process. So it's it's usually I, I play with an instrument of some sort. Um, and generate ideas, write them down. Um, I start to use the computer to notate quite early, um, also to get feedback. Like certain ensemble things that are more sort of contrapuntal or note, you know, note centric. Uh, it's really good to have that kind of feedback.
0: Right. Just the MIDI playback kind of thing. Yeah,
1: using, but I always using Finale. Yeah, I always I always take it with a giant grain of salt. Even if I'm writing a piece, it's pretty straight up. Like I mm. tend to sort of. Try to work really hard to imagine away from the computer as well. Um, So, but I mean, generally, I kind of yeah, just generate ideas and stockpile them and um, until one feels like it's going to be the one that that sort of initiates the process. So I start to write, and then um, I usually write sort of start to finish in a way. But then what will happen is like the material that I've gathered will kind of start to Present itself like it's okay. This is this is it's time to to introduce that, or you know, and then I'll kind of go back and you know extend stuff like oh, this needs more this or that. And the process generally takes pretty long. Like I'm pretty slow with that kind of stuff. Um, um, if it's if it's a if it's a kind of written out piece, I often do other pieces though where it's kind of there's a you know this material and then instructions on how to use the material. So right. sometimes like a, there's a Graphical sort of representation, um, like I wrote a piece for this group where like one of the, like three, two of us didn't read read music very well anymore. Like we were pretty, you know, <laughs> like myself. Like it was Sharon Alana um, from Thin Edge uh, playing, and then Brandon Valdivia and I, who don't read on a regular basis anymore. Like we kind of can read, but not, you know. Um, and then someone else who doesn't read music at all, Matthew Romulo. Or he reads, but not like he's he's never been trained, to put it mm-hmm. that way. So um, it was geared at that kind of situation where, you know, um, so the, the one piece sort of like you had material that sort of accumulated. So you'd have a cell and then this, the next cell would, you could play the first cell and that cell. And then eventually it would give you a signal that you can't use certain material anymore. But so there's this sort of flow chart. And then another section of the same piece had like, you know, improvise in this manner and then on a cue this material comes in over top of that improvised texture and stuff like that. So that stuff takes a little less time for me because it's, it's more about the exploration po- process as a group and sometimes when I'm working with chamber ensembles and I have a, a really, when I have the luxury of working with them beforehand, I, I make sort of exercises that way so that I can kind of understand my material better. So I'll kind of bring in melodies and sort of instruct them. So.
0: So do you, are you do you work with a, a a structure in mind like even something as simple as okay this needs to be twenty minutes long, or um, um,
1: or, or anything predetermined like that? Well, often there's there is sort of that, mm-hmm. but um, it's not it's not it's seldom sort of precise. You know, like you know maybe like a commission for twelve minutes, but. Um, I don't know, often my commissions have gone on, gone on longer. Right. I've obviously asked the performer, is it okay if, and I guess I have written some things that are just sort of for the sake of writing, um, but it's always with people, certain particular people in mind. So I've written like a two violin piece that I knew would get performed by um, performers uh, or like a solo piano piece, which is, you know, it's hard not to, it's, you know, I know lots of pianists, so stuff like that. But I've never written like an orchestral piece and just sort of, Stuck it in a drawer and waited for right. <laughs> a reading of it or something, you know. Yeah. So the on the other side of things, um, the sort of electronic, quote unquote, way I work uh, is uh, yeah, it's it's totally different. Uh, basically, I'm making sort of instrumental music at home by myself, like and generating a recording of. Like, there's basically no processing. There's, you know, there's a bit of processing, and I'll get into that. But um, usually, I just sort of sit down and start like improvising with an instrument, and then I grab another instrument and layer on top of that, and then I sort of start fleshing out a section, and then there's a section I don't know what that is, and then I start making more material, and then I figure out how things are configured. So. Um, so that's how that stuff works. I'm just sort of multi-tracking actual instruments. And I've got sort of a pretty wide collection of different instruments in various states of disrepair yeah. and uh, mm-hmm. and ones on which I like have different abilities and stuff. And that's all part of the sound world to me. That's sort of the, I like those limitations of like, or they're not always limitations, like the way I will interact with an instrument that's sort of more foreign to me intrigues me, and so I mm. I like having that sort of artifact embedded in the, the music.
0: So, so in that kind of process uh, with the electroacoustic stuff, is it is it more like um, kind of getting it going and 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 the the piece emerges and the recording is the piece? Yeah. Or did it, do you then go back and um, sort of turn those s- s- sketches, for lack of a better word, like recorded sketches into into something else that you'll manipulate or stretch or you know fi- fix into a score or what have you
1: Uh well manipulate and stretch like do you mean like um like electronically No no I just mean like going back and
0: saying like this section is good I'm going to get this going again and just make it be like play it more make it make it longer you Oh yeah what, I mean I definitely I mean? there's
1: definitely like a very uh, the, the, the gestation process of those pieces are is really long too so I right. like I'll shelve something for months and come back to it and then and then work with it again, and and yeah, often it is the case where I'm like, yeah, that didn't, didn't go long enough. And but my rule is that I don't, I always, I never copy and paste. I always play it. again. Play it again. Yeah, I mm-hmm. just I like to approach it as though it's like I I, I don't know I I, I try to uh, kind of make it in a way that um, I mean I guess in like a on a rock record or not a rock record, but like a folk record or something. You might they might copy and paste, but. Um, like I'll correct, I'll like play certain little chunks again, like I'll uh, an edit, like make a composite, but I won't take that composite and then just copy it wholesale. I'll have to, it's just, I like the sort of, I mean, it's just sort of this weird rule I've made for myself. And this is a recent thing. This is sort of since 2012 that I've been working this way. So yeah, like the rules are, I guess, yeah, I don't, I don't um, copy and paste. Um, there's there's maybe some some aberrations to that um, that I'm I don't use pro like processing in a way that's that isn't to enhance it like so I I would use like a an EQ I would use like a mm. compressor just standard stuff I would use some reverb but like just it's the sort of tools that um you'd use to make a an acoustic record so when I do use processing what I actually do is I I do allow myself processing, but what what I use is like transducer speakers, and so I'll, I'll put um, a, attach a speaker, like a vibrating speaker, to um, you know a, some sort of resonating thing, and run the sound through that or right. spring reverb, anything that's physical. So I I'm, I'm, right. I limit myself to physical things. Talk box is allowed. Um, you know and i devise my own little things like I, I recently found a cd rack that's like a metal cd rack and i've attached the transducer to the one side and then the contact mic to the other side and it resonates um it's kind of creates this reverb but you run that through twice and you get a different thing but it's it's still a, a vibrating acoustical phenomenon in a sense so that's sort of my that's how i limit myself and i don't limit the amount of multi-tracking i i definitely don't um I definitely play things over and over again until I get it right too. Like it's I like I do take upon take and just like until it, it works for right. me. Are um, you using logic or Pro Tools or something? I'm using uh recently I've been using Reaper. Um oh, yeah. I used to use uh Adobe Audition because the reason I use those two programs is because both of them allow you to because I record so much so many dud ideas. It doesn't save it automatically, whereas most conventional recording software these days just puts everything on your hard drive. Right. So the, then you have to like kind of weed through it. But with Reaper, it asks, it prompts you whether you want to save it or not. And same with this really old version of Adobe Audition I used to use. So right. that's sort of <laughs> interesting. So, so it's a yeah, it's a
0: real uh, almost analog style, like uh, like uh, you know back in the days the four track cassettes. Like you couldn't, you know, you just couldn't keep everything on there. Like you had to. Yeah, erase it. You know, if you yeah.
1: really wanted to do it again, yeah, you, yeah, could, you yeah. couldn't just keep it and, and, and check it out. Well, this is like you know, like sometimes you record something, you just know that it's crap, and mm. I, like I'll record and like until I find an idea. So sometimes I, I will want to keep it, but other times I don't. So what I do is I just, you know, I save the stuff I want and toss like immediately toss the stuff I don't. Right, know. right. It's just easier to have that in place rather than something where it autom- anytime any, anytime you hit record, it's just automatically in your hard drive. Right. Saves time on the on the editing. Yeah.
0: Um, so you're an improviser yourself and you've written a lot. You were just talking about um, writing more open-ended scores. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you, how do you work with these frames of improvisation and composition? Is it making conscious choices around it, or is it about the people that you're playing with
1: and what they're comfortable doing? There's uh yeah, there's sort of like two factors there. Like I think the main I tend to provide a fair amount of material. I don't tend to use graphic scores and stuff like that. It tends to be it tends to sound like my music rather than, more than it sounds like, or at least parts of it will sound like me as opposed to sort of an interpretation of something that is designed to be sort of interpreted however one likes. So it's generally fairly specific um, in terms of like the actual written out stuff. There's often, you know, actual notation like a melody or harmonies or Or whatever rhythmic material um, that's used. Um, And so the outcome is fairly predictable, but it it does depend on who I'm writing for. So the piece I wrote for um, the show on Monday was a 30 minute piece. And basically, there was like one melody on a piece of paper uh, translated for different instruments, and then a kind of what I called an an agenda. So it was just like a, a chart with you know num- numbered sections with approximate durations and then um, how to treat those different durations so some it was just like droning and you had different options of how you could do that and then other times it would be like you know play play the the melody the provided melody and then there's these different options for how you play it as an ensemble so and then there's like solos, there's actual solos. And then there's mm. de- details of how to accompany the solos, but it's pretty, it's very open. So that's maybe the most open kind of piece like that, that I've done, but it was, it worked quite well. And how intentional
0: was that around your approach around, you know, setting out to, okay, I'm going to write something that's got more improvising than I normally do, or or was it a response to a particular opportunity? It was. If, if that makes sense. Yeah, it
1: was a response because... Um, basically I was holding off to, to, to find out who is going to be playing in the ensemble. So I was gathering sort of an ensemble. Um, and so, you know, um, I wanted to make sure that I had, um, you know, I, I wanted to know who was comfortable with what. So if there had been more sort of chamber players in it, I probably would have given more written material. Um, whereas, um, this was like mostly improvisers. So it's like Brody, Colin Fisher, myself, and, uh, uh, Shen Ye. so, and she's a strong reader, um, and so is I mean we all we all can read, but it, it was they all have different ways of approaching written stuff, and Shen doesn't use that much in her own practice, um, but she's she's really versed in how to read music, and that was the first time her, she had played an open score like that. Whereas Colin can read. Uh, as well. But he, you know, he, most of what he does is free improv, whereas Brody is mm-hmm. sort of somewhere in between. And I'm kind of somewhere in between for my own reasons. So but I wrote it for specifically for that context. Um, and same with the stuff at the Somewhere There Festival a couple of years back, I was writing for, you know, I was I was writing for a, a group that I kind of put together and I and I knew who did what and I assigned the tasks thusly <laughs> right right so there's a bit of collaboration there what
0: what yeah. role does collaboration play in your work uh is you know you're talking you just mentioned about responding to what the players you have assembled are comfortable doing or mm-hmm. or, or whatever maximizing their ability to do what it is they do yeah um yeah how does that connect to the idea of of collaboration in your work
1: hmm, that's a really tough question in a way I guess I I aim to be collaborative, even when the work is is kind of very top down and more traditional. Like my intention uh, when I'm writing, as I said before, I, I'm usually writing specifically for a set of people. So not only am I kind of thinking about their abilities, I'm thinking about what what they would like to play. I, I write in a way for for them, and so. Um, yeah, even when collaboration isn't an explicit part of what I'm doing, um, it's still it's still part of it, you know, right? That being said, there's some, <laughs> like I think of some pieces where I've written parts that yeah, I've definitely written certain pieces where I, performers might not find it that collaborative because they're given certain people who are accustomed to having, a, a larger role are given like pretty menial <laughs> work, um, and even like for some odd reason, I've always written, uh, I've often written the, the string quartets. I write from the bottom up in a sense because cello mm-hmm. would be my main instrument. So um, frequently, it's the the first violin isn't the primary player. They're, right. they're just they just have the highest. The highest notes, and sometimes they're just playing like, so I always sort of yeah I always have to think about that that I'm kind of assigning yeah and so, but all in all I I tend to sort of try to think about and I like to work with the ensemble directly if if possible and I've been given that opportunity a few times where I'm writing a piece for someone and I get to sort of workshop it a bit that's that's ideal for me. Because I like that kind of engagement, and I do a lot of other collaborative work, like in dance. Like I'm, as, as I just said, like I've been increasingly I'm working in dance, and I love that. I love that kind of. Yeah, certain, certain sort of collaborative situations are not ideal, but dance is one where you, the, the forms are, are equally abstract that you're able to sort of. I feel like I'm I'm able to sort of. Respond and and collab, bring my own voice to the table, and and it's sort of. You know, I, I feel like the, it's it's in the response is, is different. Whereas if you're responsible for like narrating something, it's it's a very different sort right. of situation.
0: Yeah. Well, that I mean, that seems a good spot to um, switch over to doing a bit of a bit of listening here. Yeah. To um, some pieces that you've brought in. Sure. Um. Maybe you can set one up for us.
1: Sure. So, as I mentioned before, I'm kind of uh, like there's this sort of aspect of my work that uh, I was talking about Suzuki and how it sort of has a a certain impact on what I do. And um, I guess this is sort of an example of that. A a lot of my work recently, I mean, I did did that album Gardens that sort of, in a way, a sort of indirect tribute to um, this album that I really love. Come to My Garden by Minnie Ripperton, who is, you know, the, the record was produced and arranged by this guy Charles Stepney. And I, I found it really, the sort of sound world of it really fascinating and compelling enough that I thought it would be interesting to sort of make a tribute to it. So um, this is sort of uh, following in that kind of same thing. It's, this is from a project that I'm working on that's a sort of tribute to Roberta Flack, of all people, And I, this is the other thing too. Is I, I like the sort of disjunct between the 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 fact that there's that the the listeners sort of forced to sort of compare two things that don't seem similar, and find what's sort of what's common between them in a way. I think it's I think it sort of somehow speaks to the music and how I think about music in general. I I can't really define that in in a very specific way, but it's not just a sort of perverse joke and I'm completely and utter, utterly serious about the tribute aspect of it. There's no irony or none of that sort of nonsense. So, um, yeah, so this is a, from a series of pieces that sort of, yeah, like they're all, all the titles um, use, like they're, they're sort of fragments from songs that Roberta Flack sang, um, but... There's no material that's actually derived from <laughs> Roberta Flack. Um, so this is a track called uh, "Tides That De- Defeat Identity," and it's uh, I'm it's from a work in progress, I guess. Um, so, All right. So I'll play that. Let's hear it. Why did you choose this piece? I chose it because it's like the sort of most recent thing I've been working on a lot, uh, and I think it's it's exciting that it's fresh and uh, it's a little different than some of the other work of this nature that I've done. And I thought I I don't know I just thought it'd be fun to share it. So that's that's the main reason. What's different about it? Uh, it's well. On one hand, there's a l- a lot more layers than a lot of the other stuff I was doing before. Like there's there's probably at points like up to three hundred tracks going. But yeah, no, it's sort of um, yeah, like sort of more layered. It's also like kind of like it's not as harmonically opaque as some of the other stuff that I've been doing of this nature. Like like gardens and some of the other stuff has been kind of there's some like weird microtonal things happening, but they're kind of microtonal in a timbrel way rather than in a, in a, it's very kind of, I don't know, yeah, like lush and kind of static harmonically in a way. So maybe there's a key change in there somewhere. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I wasn't really tracking, but so yeah, I guess that's one of the primary differences, but the dent, the sort of cloudy density, like it's, it's dense, but in this sort of like puffy sort of light way, I guess that's, that's one of the big differences. I think a lot of the other stuff was more, there's a lot of information going on, and maybe it would seem more dense on the surface, but there's just sort of like a lot of kind of micro activity happening. So, just tracks and tracks of me doing the same kind of glockenspiel trill at different rates. Or, um, so it's is it all you? You recorded? Oh yeah, all and the this all this stuff is like this kind of stuff is just me. Right. I think uh, you know, there's I think there's been I've like entertained the idea of like working with other artists on it, and I think there's some talk on this album of having one thing that's actually kind of a song kind of pops out of like a kind of piece like this. So like midway through it turns into a song and then kind of like that uh, Wayne Shorter record with uh, Gingy on it. You know that? No. Oh, it's great. You got to hear it. It's like this kind of like chaotic sort of free free form jam and then all of a sudden in the middle it it goes into Gingy with a Brazilian singer and then it just goes back out into this like really weird, it's like Sonny Chirac and like, Sonny Chirac and John McLaughlin playing and like, well, like Chick Korea playing drums and, or vibraphone or something like something that he doesn't play. It's very kind of weird and off kilter. It's really beautiful. All
0: right. Anyway, so what? Uh, take me through the process of of writing this. I mean, you described your process generally. Is there something uh,
1: to to add to it? Your earlier description in relation to this work. With this album that I'm working on, um, I have been writing more. This is this is not. There's not a lot of writing on this one. Um, but some of the other stuff I'm working on is actually kind of written out and then played, which is new for me. I haven't usually I do it completely by ear, which is also mm. back to the Suzuki thing. <laughs> it's like I kind of c- compose in a uh, in that manner. So um, this one is has been made sort of orally only. But um, yeah, I don't know writing it. It's just sort of basically I just sort of sit with it. I listen to it. I export it and listen to it on my phone when I'm like out and about. And so the, a lot of listening, that's a, that's a big part of my process. And even on certain pieces where like chamber pieces, I'll like dump out a MIDI version of it and take it around with me and listen to it just to sort of stick with the material. And like everything I do feels like a response to listening to it. And that's hmm. that, that's so, hearing stuff is really crucial to me. I, I'm not one of those composers that has a system and I, I explore some, some sort of numerical principle and then um, listen later it's I, I'm i listening right from the start and it's coming out of a sort of it's like it's like the, that quote about um, it, like composition being slowed down improvisation that's this is literally that it's literally me improvising over and over and over again until it sounds right and then so with this there's a lot of kind of like background like there's melodies and stuff and I think I'm getting kind of uh, this stuff has a, this particular piece has a more interest in Kind of foreground background than some of the other stuff I was doing. Like with stuff on gardens, I was often very interested in creating a a complete, um, like a sort of um a very flat perspective where there's a lot of information and there's not very there's not too many cues about how to navigate it. So you're just sort of listening through a kind of um, a texture, and you're you're kind of you're not really there isn't as much of a sense of foreground and background whereas this is more kind of it almost sounds electronic it sounds like kind of like an almost like ambient music with them that's a little more right. kind of, uh, that has a little more kind of momentum to it and uh, but in a sense the compositional process is kind of almost like orchestral writing like um you know i will kind of like be like okay this is going to have a melody that goes over top of this and so i'll kind of you know there'll be you know endless sort of dulcimer sort of Stuff in the background, and then you know a melody that kind of cuts through. So I guess that's one of the big concerns with this, and sort of a yeah more romantic approach, I guess, than some of my other work. But that's what I think is kind of interesting about it. Um, Something that occurred to me while I was listening to this is that like I remember when I first started writing more chamber music, like you know throughout like high school and stuff, I was writing the occasional piece for instrumentalists, but um, it was only in university that I kind of got into writing seriously. So I kind of, um, um, and I, I really wanted to th- think about some of the things I was addressing with timbre and texture in electronic music and, and think about ways of doing that in a, in the acoustic domain. So I kind of started trying to translate kind of ideas that I, I used, um, you know, with like processing like granulation and like, Other things where I like, I was like, "How do I replicate that on an instrument?" But now, what I'm finding is that some of those um, there's a more more of a convergence of these sort of things. Like it's like techniques I've discovered as an improviser, or that I've you know heard. um, Because with this kind of music, I can you know tune an instrument differently and then tune it back up, however I like. like things you'd never be able to do in a real ensemble setting. So it's a chance for me to explore all these things that they're kind of like a translation back to like a kind of recording domain. So I like I've kind of translated things certain things and done a lot of exploration with timbre on instruments through well, both through improvisation and kind of this translation process between electronic music to chamber music or whatever. Um, and now I'm sort of like taking that and putting it back into a recorded domain without the sort of electronic aspect. So it's kind of this orchest- this weird sort of hybrid of orchestration and like kind of imagining electronic processing at times and so there's a lot of that kind of stuff happening in this where I'll kind of do these sort of like like that one microtonal s- swoop that you kind of It's mm-hmm. just like Ebo on a mandola like 10 times um, different pitches but like the whole intention of it was to create this sort of like synth- synthesized sort of sound yeah so it's kind of it's, it's an interesting full circle that I've sort of made and I think it's interesting to that translation process. Yeah, great to hear. Um, what um, do you get? Another one that we could. Yeah, that we could go um, through. So this is a 2015 work called Byland. It was commissioned by Eva Goyan, who's a Toronto-based pianist, uh, through the assistance of uh, the Canada Council for the Arts.
0: All right. Byland. Thank you. So that's byland for solo piano and that's that's quite different from the previous electroacoustic <laughs> piece. Um how do you how do you approach composing for a instrument especially the piano um, differently than than in the electroacoustic realm?
1: Well, typically it's not all that much different. I mean, there's certain limitations on what I can do with an ensemble that like you know there's there aren't those limitations except in my own instrumental ability when I do the other stuff um, like you know I can retune things do whatever whereas you know you have certain conventions you have to observe with a, a regular ensemble but in the case of um, in the case of something like this with a just it's a solo piece and especially one for solo piano um, I, it was a really daunting thing for me um, so Eve asked me to do this. Um, I'd been in, improvising with her and Tillman Lewis at her house. And she she asked me, she just sort of asked me if I wanted to write a piano piece. And I was like, wow, I'd love to. Because she's sort of like a really, I think of her as a, being a really sort of amazing interpreter. And so, um, yeah, so I was eager to do that. However, uh, I, I, like the, I just sort of got stuck. It was really... Nerve wracking to write for the piano, as you were sort of saying while we're listening to this, that it's a bit, bit strange. Um, Process wise, it's like not that much different though. It's like, as I've said before, like my process tends to be very, very intuitive and like driven by my ears. So it's it was really this was just really a case of sort of sitting down with a piano, fiddling around and and responding to my sort of my ears, and so. Um and then also listening to the MIDI playback uh, and just sort of asking questions about, you know, duration and silence and and sort of repetition. There's a lot of repetition, just like how long to like let that one note repeat, um, and and what kind of impact it's gonna have if, if I if I if it just keeps on going and stuff like that. And like also do these sort of like contrast that this piece has too. So, I, right. yeah, it's, it's very, it's, I don't know, there's not much I can describe about it. It's, it's very kind of, uh, yeah, the, the listening. Um, and I guess the, the thing that's worth mentioning is something that came up with the last piece is this idea of translating, this sort of notion of translating electronic sound into, um, into uh, acoustic sound. That that was sort of part of my sort of early years. Um, In a sense, this is this was sort of there was a related sort of concept that came up with this piece in that um, kind of the idea of like note combinations and what kind and like slight displacements and stuff and what kind of timbral quality that has and whether I can kind of create a sort of more of a kind of clang than 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 a chord. Like where does where does like a, a bunch of notes together. When does it start to be perceived as a sound as opposed to a, a chord? And like especially if you're right. in the upper or lower register, and so, so a sound rather than a function. Yeah, and so I mean, usually my sort of approach is very uh, sound-driven anyway. But there's definitely um, a latent uh, romantic or whatever quality to what I do. I, I guess you could say, um, or there's like a kind of you know a melodicism and a and a yeah. kind of um,
0: tonality is not absent.
1: No, not by any such of the imagination and it's sort of, yeah, so and I, I don't I don't try to bury that by any means. but this in this case, like um, I think there's a lot of th- that sort of stuff is embellished by kind of these kind of more sound dis- decisions. And also sometimes like I'll, I'll embellish things with octaves in ways that are kind of peculiar, like just sort of like certain notes will have like grace notes or, or um, whatever that's called with uh, what is that called? In a, like a broken, like a broken chord symbol, but with two notes. So yeah. things like that, where um, I'll kind of just like throw an octave transposition, but like displaced um, in where you wouldn't necessarily, where it serves no sort of melodic purpose per se. It's just to create a kind of weird right. sort of blossoming of the sound.
0: Yeah. So you talked about following your ears in this. Yeah. Um, how do you think about the role of the listener in, in the, in the kind of music communication process. And, and so for a piece like this, for example, or any piece like, is there, are you imagining an ideal listener or, or anything you'd like the listener to know, um, or just, just in general, how you think about the listener in the musical communication process?
1: I think about the listener a lot, but maybe not in the conventional way that people listen, think about the listener. I don't, I don't let my perception of a, a kind of. I don't have a sort of fictional listener in my head that that's going to respond in any particular way to my work, or, or you know, I don't expect anybody to sort of follow a narrative or any of that kind of stuff. I'm, but I do, I. Because I, as I said before, I kind of take my music out for a walk, and I, I treat it. I try to embody that kind of relationship. Right, with you're the trying music. to make yourself into the listener. Yeah, in, in, in the in the process. Yeah, all the time, and with every piece of music as much as possible. Like because I really value listening to music, and I have that. Like that's a really big part of my relationship to music is listening to it. Um, yeah in concert or on on recording and so yeah that seems crucial though
0: too sorry in in your process of of listening to your own music like outside of the workspace yeah that changes your i assume that that changes your relationship to it because Mm -hmm. you're not listening to it and then immediately changing it or whatever you're yeah you're you're outside as as you would listen to any other
1: music by anybody else yeah definitely um, or like even just putting on the stereo as opposed to on the, like, like playing it through the monitors like right. bringing it actually to my stereo, which is right. only like about the same distance as yours from yours, but putting it on the stereo and like looking at the stereo and like treating it like that. or right. Or maybe even listening with someone else that I trust, like a, a friend or my partner, you know, it's like, that's kind of a, I, I like that kind of process. Right. And yeah. Sort so sharing sort it.
0: Of pulling it out of the studio environment. Oh, yeah. more, more or less.
1: Yeah. So yeah, so the, the the listener to me, it's like it's that sort of how I engage, um, and so it is still my ears, but it, um, in a sense, it's like I try to evaluate it. Um, yeah, you put a little bit of error in between, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, or like just like, yeah, turn the sort of like no, not looking at the score, not looking at anything, you know, not not thinking of it that way. Um, yeah, that's that's great. Um, you're also well, something we haven't
0: talked about so far is you're also a, a music journalist really and uh, mm-hmm. and somebody who's who's to my mind writing about the most interesting people and uh, and and giving great takes on on what what cool. people are up to um, so within that and, and even so yourself but you're also thinking deeply about what other people are up to what what is what's your view of the um, Kind of the composer's role in the musical world today, or like where, where composition is, is at, and and if, if we might have any political social responsibilities, or just generally how we are, how the idea mm. of composition plugs into the world as it is.
1: Well, I've been thinking about this a lot um, lately, and um, it's come up a few times when I've written uh, articles and also, um, liner notes, like about sort of just thinking about how, um, yeah, where we're at in the 21st century, uh, and what, what makes it different than the prior century. And I think there are some really crucial differences. Um, I think right now we're in a time where, um, there's no longer this sort of like, and I've called it the, the, the sort of arms race of innovation. That's sort of <laughs> kind of like the sort of, it's not just exclusive to modernism, but it comes out of that kind of vanguardist sort sure, of, of mentality. So, like, you'd have people kind of, um, yeah, competing and w- like warring uh, w- with like this waging aesthetic war on each other. You know, you'd have, you know, the serialists. It was initiated with that, but then you'd have a response to that, and another response, and like, you know, the whole sort of thing mm. of like music concrete versus uh, I forget what they called um, electronic music. I think it was called. If there there's these different models, and 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 people insisted that their model was superior. And like even like min- up to minimalism, minimalism was a response. Uh, it was another fuck you to to uh, sort of you know the sort of Serialism, modernism. Yeah. Yeah, or like the sort of at least you know that sort of derivation of that, like that sort of hypergestural sort of thing, and then there's new complexity. It was just this endless uh, series of this, but somewhere along the line, people started to sort of drift away from that. Like there's sort of these outsider composers that have kind of cropped up along the line that just weren't associated with that, with these sort of major schools of thought. And I think in many ways that. Those types of people are like, they really foreshadow what's going on today. And do you think that's
0: connected? I mean, uh, it, my thought would be that it's connected to the um, ability to sort of record and put music out there that's way easier than it was 20 years ago. So mm-hmm. that you can plug yourself into a musical conversation in a, in a, in, in a pretty direct
1: way, but maybe not. That's just the first thought about it. It's reciprocal. I mean, I think it's like uh, listeners too, like, you know, listeners have the ability to like research, you know, like if I go look at when I started listening to music, which was when I was like 12, 13, like listening to it seriously, like I would have to, you know, I'd listen to something on the radio and, you know, uh, certain stuff wasn't accessible to me, especially that young where I, you know, I couldn't order it readily from, mm-hmm. you know, I have to mail order it, but, you know, I, I was 12 and didn't have a credit card or whatever. Right. And, um, so just that whole discovery process is just so much easier now. Mm-hmm. Um, and to like, you know, and I think that you like you're seeing people now that they're just sort of digesting a, a disparate and personal array of influences and, and that's what their music, th- their music embodies that. And, um, Whereas before, I think you were really beholden to like, like a, a school of thought, and if you weren't with that school of one school of thought, you were kind of somehow commenting on on the dominant schools of thought. Like right. You, would, you know, like there was this sort of post, like really sort of conscious postmodernism that happened sort of for a long time, and now we're living in an environment that's basically like all those things, just like all the things that postmodernism sort of imagined are just sort of. It, like just floating around. Like the internet is, you know, especially it's just sort of made that kind of a little bit, it's kind of null in, in a way. Like it's, everything's fragmented and, you know, there's just just this deluge of information. So, um, I mean, there, you know, there's certain things that are bad about that. There's certain drawbacks. There's like a s- certain su- superficiality that, you know, but I think overall it's, it's positive. And I think I like the way that it's impacting creative work because people are kind of liberated from that and uh i think people are more reverential toward like in, whereas postmodernism was sort of like oh haha like i'm going to reference this thing and i'm going to reference that thing and you know it's sort of this like almost um kind of nihilistic there was this nihilistic edge to it whereas right. now people are doing that in a sense but they're but there it's not it's it's usually not as it doesn't have that sort of nihilistic undercurrent it's kind of but it's not necessarily, uh, earnest either. It's just, it is what it is. It's... Right. So it's interesting. I think well, that's Well, really... I bet some of that comes out of, out of,
0: you know, hip hop and sampling culture. Absolutely. And, and the the yeah. repurposing of older, yep. of older stuff and, and lots of different ways to interpret that as a listener and to yeah. use it as a, as a, as a composer.
1: Yeah. And, and like in not so explicit ways too, it's like not, yeah, it's not a question of, uh, I think people are becoming more at home with the idea that, like, that being influenced by something doesn't make it derivative of that thing necessarily. Too, like, I think that, that you know, there's there's because sam- sampling has sort of demonstrated that to us that you can take something and like decontextualize it in a sense. Um, and so now people are just sort of, I think a lot of people are thinking of music that way that you can kind of like, oh, well, I'm inspired by this particular thing. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put it over there and kind of do something else with it, even if they're not working with samples or electronics even. Yeah, I know there's a principle. There's yeah. a principle of thinking about
0: sonic material there that I think is yeah. transferable um, from the kind of specific, yep. whatever James Brown samples out to yep. out to what you were talking about with with Roberto Flack or um, and whatever, any of the other references you've yeah. mentioned. Uh,
1: yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. As, as far as a sort of political thing goes, I mean, I, I'm I'm not someone who's like actively political in my music, but I do. I'm not someone who believes that music is apolitical either, mm. and I think that there's you know there's certain political. For me, like the the thing of like all the other aspect of referencing artists that are outside of, like my sort of ostensible sphere of influence, in my work. Um, I don't, it's not a there's not a political agenda behind it, but in a sense it's a political statement because it's, you know, you're. I'm sort of conflating. Um, I'm like you know by paying tribute to artists like Roberta Flack. I mean she's sort of, sort of mainstream, um, but in a sense she's I think her work is kind of underappreciated too because she's a kind of, I mean some of her work is. It's, it's it's really powerful. It's and substantial music, but she's often written off as sort of this quiet storm person in 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 a way that a lot of other black artists are sort of written off. And I think that that by like sort of paying tribute to to her work, um, the way I am, it's it's sort of a it's in a very small sort of way. It's sort of it's sort of uh, I would like to think that it would it would kind of erode this sort of um, just this thinking around kind of Western classical traditions and, and art and the sort of art music thing, and like in right. so the avant garde hi- hierarchies, yeah. hierarchies, and also and the, the sort of there's a there's a racial sort of thing too is, that's there. But it's not this is not a conscious thing. I don't go like the the reason I'm paying tribute to the music is because I like the music, and then subsequent sort of rumination about that has led me to right. realize that. But um, so. I think that yeah, every, everyone's sort of responsible for being political in a sense, but I don't think it always. I don't, I don't think it always manifests in this way that, um, that's flagrantly political. And it's I think that sometimes that takes away from. I think I think I can think of very few examples where really kind of blatant politics in the music really work well for me personally. All right. One being, I mean, I, th- I think I was totally. Swept away with that, um, that, um, Matana Roberts record on right, I mean, the third of the that trilogy. Yeah, the third one where yeah. she's it's just a solo record with a lot of overdubbing. I mean, yeah. the, the aesthetic of it spoke to me, but also just the, the the fact that it was so political, but it was just so layered and mysterious and difficult to parse, but but still you could still grasp onto certain elements. But that just floored me. I thought it was it was. Yeah, brilliant because of because of that because she was able to pull pull off the sort of politi- political thing without it kind of dominating the, it, without it becoming a textual sort of, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Well, Thank that's
0: you. a um, that's a great recommendation to check out that record. It's a heavy one, and I think a good place to uh, to to call it quits here. Okay, um, that's a lot of uh, really great to hear hear about your process and and all the music and thanks for bringing it in and sharing it and speaking so uh, uh, eloquently about it <laughs> did my best <laughs>
1: right yeah thank you so thanks a lot for being here nick yeah thanks for having me this is this is great yeah. all right
0: yeah that's the show friends i hope you liked it you can find out more about nick and listen to his music on his website nickstoring.ca and on his bandcamp page As always, the content and sound quality of the show is the sole responsibility of me, Pete Johnston. I did have production and editing help this week from Julian Muya. Thanks, Julian. If you like the show, please subscribe to get my very occasional episodes and maybe rate and review it somewhere if you can spare the time. Also, if you could tell all your friends to have a listen, I would appreciate that too. For some reason, I'm not on any social media, so I'm counting on you modern people out there to spread the word. As usual, we will let my guests play us out. Here is part one of Nick's piece from 2018 called My Magic Dreams Have Lost Their Spell. Until next time, thanks for listening.